Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hey, it's Jane Marie, host of The Dream Podcast. And guess what? We have a brand new season out right now. Previously, we've looked at multi-level marketing and wellness. And this season, we're diving into the world of coaches, life coaches. And I'm getting one because life has been kind of meh since the pandemic. And I really, really want to feel better and be better. Listen to The Dream on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lives Less Ordinary is the podcast from the BBC World Service, bringing you extraordinary personal stories from around the globe. Search for Lives Less Ordinary wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is Discovery from the BBC World Service, and I'm exploring two stories each week of how insects have transformed our world. Sitting at my desk at the Natural History Museum, and like every good entomologist, it's absolutely covered with insects. It's terrible. But right in the middle of it, I have what actually looks like a rock. It's in fact thousands of flies squashed together in this patty. This is a kunga cake made from small gnats, which occur in immense swarms at certain seasons in Lake Victoria and Lake Malawi. And they're kind of like scooped up and then they're kneaded together to form these cakes. It's a really good free form of protein. Over 80% of animals described on our planet are insects, and yet their appearances can seem as alien or as strange as many a mythic beast. But some of us who study these wondrous species, both now and in the past, have discovered a treasure trove of remarkable insights. We've been eating insects for a millennia, but we're now turning our attention to a much larger, much fatter species of fly. I'm Erica McAllister, and in this series I'm taking a peek at these entomological pioneers and examining how their groundbreaking discoveries and experiments have led to some truly novel developments. So this is a room that you will be very used to. Yeah, so it looks like there's a whole series of rows of these adult soldier flies, males and females just sitting, and, um, yeah, a few of them copulating. A lot of them copulating. Oh. The black soldier flies are the original hipsters. They only eat organic and they love to recycle. And it's the glutinous larvae of these wasp-like creatures that are of particular interest. Armed with powerful chewing mouthparts, they have a remarkable ability to shred, devour, transform nearly any kind of organic waste into high-quality edible protein. And all the while leaving a carbon footprint much smaller than their own little feet. The adults will never land on manure or your food or then on you, unlike a housefly or a blowfly. And the larvae will never climb a tree and try and eat an apple. <laughs> They'll only eat you know, rotting material. So they're these phenomenally safe superflies. Soldier flies were first recorded in their native North America and described by Linnaeus, the father of taxonomy, in 1758. And for centuries were considered a compost-dwelling pest to be controlled or eradicated. 
This all changed, however, during the 19th century, thanks to one of the fathers of modern entomology, Charles Valentine Riley. This passionate insect collector transformed entomology from a profession of collecting and arranging specimens to one of scientific analysis of insect diversity, ecology and the applied management of insect pests. Insects play a most important part in the economy of nature and do us a great deal of indirect good. Yet they are chiefly known by the annoyances they cause and by the great deal of injury they do to our crops and domestic animals. Hence, some knowledge of insects and how to study them becomes important, almost necessary to every farmer. Riley had emigrated from Europe to the United States back in the 1860s, joining family friends who had a farm in rural Illinois. There, he toiled on the land before moving to Chicago and taking a job with the prairie farmer, a rag aimed at helping the sodbusters who fed the nation. He was a problem solver. He answered their questions and brought in relevant details about the ecology and damage by different insects, employing what he called field agents in different parts of the U.S. to address these problems. Don Weber is author of a new biography of Riley. His reputation was such he was able to become the state entomologist of Missouri. People sent in specimens or sent in problems or said, my beehive has these flies, what do I do about it? And American beekeepers in particular had become concerned. By the 1880s, the black soldier fly had rapidly spread through the southern states and honey farmers began noticing these little flies invading their hives. The beekeepers discovered what they thought were the maggots of black soldier fly. But if you read his response, it's quite interesting because (laughs) he emphasized the fact that they were feeding on the debris. Black soldier fly is of no hazard to beekeeping. They're just very, very good cleaners, opportunistic cleaners getting in there and recycling everything. That's right. So here I am in the collection, and this is one of the drawers in the Natural History Museum of Hermetia lucens. So these are beautiful wasp-like creatures. They look like an army of soldiers. They're all nicely tapered and they're all lined up in rows, ready to take off and save the planet as they are likely to do so in our future. Riley in the 19th century had flown the flag for the black soldier fly, recognising that their apparent acts of destruction were actually an asset. And in the 20th century, that list of assets continued to grow. Their ability to kill pesky house flies, only colonise organic waste, and the sheer speed at which its larvae could convert manure into protein. It's hard to believe that a larva, when it hatches out of its egg, will grow about 15,000 times its size. It's like an infant child growing to the size of a blue whale. And it can eat anything. That's entomologist Jeff Tomberlin of Texas A&M University. He was literally christened by the soldier fly at the start of his academic career and has known of the larvae's potential for decades. I was with my advisor, Dr. Craig Shepard, who I consider the grandfather of the field. Uh, He was working on this for 20 (laughs) years before I started working with him. And we went to a poultry facility, and we were going to sample black soldier flies, and we opened up the basement where the manure collects. And I look in, and it's raining manure, and it's about a a meter deep. And I looked at him, and I said, Dr. Shepard, I said, "Uh, we have to go in there? And he said, "Uh, no, Jeff, you have to go in there. And so, <laughs> so I had to actually wade through that waste. But 
To be knee-deep in black soldier fly larvae, consuming the manure as it fell from the chicken. I mean, that manure was available for about 30 seconds to a minute, and it was gone. I mean, it was just recycling it. It was, it was really beautiful. But raising soldier flies at anything approaching a commercial scale seemed like a dead end. No one knew how to get captive flies to reliably mate and deposit eggs. But that all changed in 2002 when Jeff and his colleagues devised a system for raising the insects in captivity with the right mixture of temperature, humidity and especially light. And it was only a matter of time before the fly's nutritious larvae could be tailored to requirements. By manipulating that diet, what you provide them, you produce different types of insects. So you harvest larvae of different nutritional components. And what we found, for example, is if you feed them a diet of apples, you'll get really fat larvae, 60% fat. And if you feed them a diet of bananas, you may get something that's a higher protein content. So depending on what waste streams we have coming in, we can tailor the insect to have the protein or fat composition you want as a feed ingredient. So let's go in and have a look. And soldier flies of feed is evolving into big business. Kieran Whitaker is CEO of EntoCycle, the UK's first soldier fly farm that's aiming to scale up the breeding and refining of these wasp-like creatures. Oh, it's nice and warm. Exploiting the nutritious larvae's phenomenal ability to break down food waste that would otherwise clog up landfills. Oh, and it's got that distinct smell. So we have the full circle of life in here. We have everything from egg all the way back through to fly and then egg again. In a room full of rearing containers held at precise temperatures and humidity, Kieran and colleagues are turning the timing of the life cycle into a controlled process to optimise the production of larvae. What we have in here are exactly the same aged insects. Yeah, okay. And that's really, so really cool. they're on a gauze, Correct. so immediately the larvae hatch, they drop through the gauze into the substrate below, Correct. and they're all of the same age. Correct, and that's a diet that's particularly designed not just diet, we're talking moisture content, size of particles, everything that enables them to get into their nutrients and make them grow as quick as possible. That's day zero. And there are many ongoing trials here. Different densities of larvae crowded together, moisture levels, even the size of the containers are all being scrutinised to ensure a consistent conversion of waste food into edible protein on a large scale. And what we have here... Oh, oh. oh five-day-old larva. I mean, how many insects am I looking at here? Half a million. Half a million. So on day five, we are then doing a separation process, which enables us to separate them from the frass. So that's the, the food substrates they've eaten, and it's in, essentially insect poo. All we've got here is a series of sips, so that only a certain size will drop down. Yes, only certain sizes drop down, and what we have in here are now a 98% pure massive insects. You get a real sense of speed at which these voracious protein powerhouses, given the right conditions, are capable of growing. By day nine, larvae are nearly half an inch or a centimetre in length and still developing. And then again, two days later, the larvae are now starting to get to processing size. So if we were to process the larvae into protein products... Mm -hmm. Within the next one to two days, we would harvest them. And as you see, they've basically taken every bit of moisture out of the soil. Yeah, all the nutrients, all the moisture. It's amazing to see this in action. And it's all a precursor to developing the UK's first industrial insect facility, Ento Farm One, which will evolve to become a semi-automated production site, churning out 2.2 tonnes of sustainable insect protein. 
and a viable alternative to the high cost of commercial livestock feed. And in the future, you could soon be farming protein in your own kitchen. And to this end, Katerina Unger has developed a tabletop insect breeding farm, Farm 432. Her prototype is a multi-chamber machine that sits on your kitchen worktop in which you could produce edible fly larvae from your own kitchen leftovers. They eat for about one week on food scraps from your kitchen. And then once they mature and they're fat, juicy <laughs> fly larvae by then, they want to crawl out of that substrate in order to pupate and turn into flies again. So what they do is they crawl up a little ramp in the device from which they fall down and they land in a receptacle from which you can then harvest them to eat them. And of those harvested larvae, you take a share of them and let them then pupate and turn into flies again. So that's how the life cycle then closes. I mean, this is great. You don't have to harvest them. They harvest themselves. That's correct. And how much protein do you get from, say, a kilogram of waste that you put in? You will be able to harvest about 200 gram of larvae protein. That's an amazing conversion. But there are hurdles to overcome, not least the reluctance of many people to consume whole larvae. However, if they're processed into powder, they're modulated into different kinds of foods, there's no way of us not acquiring it in our food mm. chain because of the functional properties. We have a high protein content, we have very high digestibility, and in mm. the coming years we will see this come through for the protein, not the larva itself, to land on a plate, but the protein to land on our plates. We have come a long way since Riley turned around the reputation of the soldier fly and there is no denying the untapped ability of flies to feed the growing population. But it is from feeding to drinking that we turn to next, where we spill the secrets of beetles that produce water from thin air with a potential to irrigate our planet. You're listening to Discovery from the BBC and I'm exploring how insects have transformed our world. So here I am in the collection at the Natural History Museum and I'm surrounded by beetles. There's loads of them. And every single specimen tells you a little story, where they live, how they live, etc. And what I've got in front of me are the water beetles. Now, some of these are really amazing because they are able to breathe underwater because they take with them a water bubble. It's called a plastron. And it's through this that they can diffuse oxygen so they can breathe underwater. It's absolutely amazing. You've got these beetles that have adapted to this incredibly wet environment. But how do beetles adapt to an incredibly dry environment such as a desert that has no water? Over 80% of animals described on our planet are insects. And yet their appearances can seem as alien or as strange as many a mythic beast. But some of us who study these wondrous species, both now and in the past, have discovered a treasure trove of remarkable insights. And it's one beetle in particular, it's a handstanding beetle, that has taught us how to extract water out of thin air. I'm Erica McAllister, and in this series I'm taking a peek at these entomological pioneers and examining how their groundbreaking discoveries and experiments have led to some truly novel developments. Beetle collecting was a relatively unknown passion of explorer David Livingston. 
He'd become a national hero in Britain after his missionary expedition in the 1850s, where he was the first European to cross the width of southern Africa and return with examples of species from some of the harshest environments never before seen in the UK. His box of beetles, recently rediscovered in the Natural History Museum, were collected on a government-backed expedition to see if the Zambezi could be opened up for commerce. So I'm Max Barclay and I'm the curator in charge of beetles here at the Natural History Museum. And right now I'm staring at two drawers of beetles and I like to be able to say that I presume I'm looking at the Livingston beetles here. Ah, yes, very good, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, those are indeed uh, Dr Livingston's beetles from the Zambezi expedition. And these are from 1858 to 1864. They're, they're incredible specimens. Well, yes, that's what's so good about beetle specimens, is that they're very tough and they survive, and those specimens may be 150 or 170 years old, and they look as good as the day that they were collected. And it's not just in their, their dead state they preserve well. These beetles are quite, as we call them, hardcore. They can get themselves into all sorts of environments. Well, that was something that Livingston noticed, in fact, was that when he's in very inhospitable environments, there's still beetles just going about their daily business, <laughs> as if they were sort of oblivious to the fact that they're in a desert or somewhere. Yeah. One of the harshest environments for any beetle, or insect for that matter, has to be the Namib Desert. It's one of the most arid areas of the world, receiving only 1.4 centimetres of rain per year. The Namib stretches along the West African coast, from Angola through Namibia and onto Cape Town, but it's only a few hundred kilometres wide, where giant plains of gravel separate three seas of mobile sand blown in by the Atlantic Ocean. Duncan Mitchell of the University of Witzwaterstraat in Johannesburg has for decades been making detailed studies of its fauna. If you are a casual visitor there, you see just sand. Because in terms of animal life, most of the animals of the Namib do not live on the sand surface. They live 200 millimetres down below the sand surface, where it's very comfortable for them. They have plenty of oxygen down there. They only yeah. come out on the surface when they really have to. What the apparently barren Namib lacks in rainfall, it makes up for with a spectacular inland fog, which appears irregularly on the dunes close to midnight. The fog actually forms in the high atmosphere there. It comes inland and it may deposit fog droplets. About every 30 days there'll be a fog, but you don't know exactly when it's going to be there, nor do the animals, but they know when it's coming. We don't know how they know yet, but we suspect they listen to the wind. Because the wind changes direction before the fog. All sorts of animal life comes out and starts preparing for the <laughs> fog. And more comes out when the fog's there. But how could species survive in such an extreme environment? In 1976, the answer was splashed across the front covers of Nature and Science when Namibian desert ecologist Mary Seeley unravelled some of the intimate relationships between the desert's fog and its fauna. In particular, the beetles, some of which appeared to be accessing fog water directly by literally wallowing in these nocturnal pea supers. Well, we were the first ones to discover it and watch what was going on. Every night there was a fog and we were amazed. Beetles would come out and often they would walk up to the top of the dune, the slip face and turn around and face into the wind which was bearing the fog. It was an extraordinary discovery. 
Imagine, at night, in the midst of dense fog, they were able to track by torchlight the detailed activity of these obsessive fog baskers. And in the most spectacular study that they did, the researchers set up a fog alarm in the dunes, <laughs> which broadcast a signal to their camp when the fog was coming. In the, I love it. <laughs> they got up, I think, 66 nights in the year. Every oh. fog in the year, they got up and they went to go and observe the beetles. And that's when the intense and detailed uh, fog collection capacity of these beetles was discovered. They're funny-looking insects. I mean, this is Onimacris unguicularis, which is the classic fog basker. And the first thing you see when you look at this is how long the back legs yeah. and the middle legs are compared to the front legs. So they're, they're like grasshoppers of the beetle world. Yes, that's right. I mean, this thing is physiologically adapted to stand on its head. <laughs> and they'll go to the top of a sand dune, and then they'll sort of invert themselves, put their head down, put their bum up in the air, and stand on these very, very long hind legs. Mm -hmm. And the minute quantities of moisture in the atmosphere at that time uh, condense into these special structures on the back, these specially adapted grooves in the exoskeleton and run down into the beetle's mouth which is what keeps it alive in this very dry environment. And one of the things we did early on before we got more into their behavior was scooping up a bunch of them after a fog and before a fog so that we could tell the amount of weight which was being taken up. I think the highest was about 30% of their weight in one fog event. 30% of body weight, that's an extraordinary amount of fluid and hugely efficient for an animal as small as one centimetre to sustain it until the next desert fogging event takes place. And as Duncan Mitchell explains, this fog harvesting efficiency of the Onimacris beetle is down to not only the grooved nature of its exoskeleton guiding the droplets of pure water to the insect's mouth, but also due to its very specific chemical makeup. This Back is hydrophobic. It repels water. The water runs in little droplets down the grooves. And if you look very closely, you'll see a little drop of water collect on the beetle's mouth. We know that water is getting into the beetles because of isotope analysis. So you can mark that water and you can then sample the beetle's body fluids. You know it's getting in there. But nobody's actually ever seen them drinking it. You can imagine that it's not that easy to do. It's the middle of the night. It's dark, in a fog, <laughs> and the beetles weigh less than a gram. They must be drinking it. They wouldn't have yeah. evolved to have it run down to their mouths if they weren't drinking it. After that initial discovery, Namib beetles with other potential water-collecting surfaces were also identified. One in particular, the Stanakara beetle, piqued the interest of bioengineer Andrew Parker of Oxford University, who carried out detailed analysis of its back using an electron microscope. The beetle's back looks like a mountain range when you put it into an electron microscope. It's got these large bumps and on the top of the bumps or the mountains it's very very smooth and there's no waxy material on there. But there is waxy material on the valleys of those mountains and, and the, the mountain sides. Now what happens is the smooth tops of the mountains attract water. They are hydrophilic, super hydrophilic. Whereas the valleys and the mountain sides are super hydrophobic. That little bumpy surface together with wax causes water to ball up and roll off. So when you say ball up, you mean the water as it hits the beetle's back, it's propelled 
from those valleys into the peaks where droplets form that are large enough and heavy enough to roll down into the beetle's mouth. In fact, the key here is all about collecting the water in a wind. So if we put in a continuous superhydrophobic surface, like a, say, a, a non-stick saucepan, the water would hit it, but just blow off in all directions. So it's, no, it's not good enough just to repel the water. You've got to do it in a way that a large droplet is going to form that's just heavy enough to roll into the wind and be collected rather than being blown away. Fans of Star Wars will no doubt remember Luke Skywalker's moisture farm on the arid planet Tatooine. A series of huge white towers called vaporators that were used to capture moisture from air. But could they really work, say, for the controlled collection of vapour for drinking or farming on arid areas of planet Earth? Armed with these unique properties of the beetle's geometry, Andrew began 3D printing fog-capturing devices in sheet form. We can use hydrophobic inks onto a hydrophilic surface. Wow. And so we can recreate this. It's all about printing areas that mimic the beetle's back, so areas the size of the mountain peaks and the size of the valleys between. So if you get materials with the same properties and they are at the same spacing, they will perform the same function. So, for example, you could set up sheets of this material in the desert. And in fact, we've done this in the Atacama Desert in South America. Mm -hmm. The fogs blow in and the only sign of water you see are these large droplets rolling down the material into a collector. So it works really, really well. Fog capturing devices inspired by the beetles' bumps are becoming a major industrial enterprise for sourcing fresh water in drought-stricken areas of our planet. But with climate change, fog trends are as hard to grasp as the mist itself. And for the inspiring fog harvesting beetles of the Namib, their outlook seems uncertain. Around the world, with global warming, fog is disappearing. If the fog does disappear from the Namib, or even if it just starts depositing in a different place mm. in the Namib, those beetles at least, and indeed much of the Namib fauna will not survive. Duncan's warnings are reminders that even as new technologies offer opportunities to tap into the ethereal power of fog, it may yet slip beyond our reach. But the legacy of the beetle's bump geometry will live on. Labs have been developing a host of applications that mix water-attracting and repelling surfaces, from windows and mirrors that don't fog up to self-filling water bottles capable of collecting up to three litres of water every hour if the wind conditions are right. In Japan, for example, there are large air conditioning systems within large buildings consisting of a, sort of a central tower, almost like an exhaust, that sends the water vapour out into the atmosphere. But this causes the air to rise in temperature up to two degrees, in fact. But if you coated your tower with this beetle mimic structure, not only would you recollect the water, but you prevent the heat from going into the environment and keep things much cooler. I'll drink to that. It's amazing that one hand-standing beetle is giving us the heads up in developing water harvesting technology. But it's from a hand-standing beetle to a bottom-waggling bee that we turn to next to understand the power of signalling and intelligence. Thanks for listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Erica McAllister and the producer was Adrian Washbourne. Catch you next time. 
suddenly my quilt is ripped off me and then my room is full of white men and I thought I'm done for. These are fascists. They found where I live. Lives Less Ordinary is the podcast from the BBC World Service bringing you extraordinary personal stories from around the globe. Betrayal. It runs through my life and runs through my story. I was just all alone in this vast broken system. I never gave up my dream. Search for Lives Less Ordinary wherever you get your BBC podcasts.